Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Um, the profits from this event are going to be donated to Amnesty International at Ian McEwan's request. He is, as I'm sure you know, uh, a Booker Prize winner. He happened to win it for Amsterdam, but could have won it for anything. His novel, Atonement, has currently sold about a quarter of a million copies in this country. If you haven't read it, please do very soon. He will be signing copies of it afterwards in the book tent. He is, I, I firmly believe, along with Philip Roth, the greatest novelist now writing in the English language. He's going to be talking, um, giving a lecture called Turning Pages, Love and Death. Please welcome Ian McEwan. So this isn't fiction. This is the truth. During October 2001, my wife Annalina and I spent a week in a high remote farmhouse in the Tramontana Mountains of northeast Majorca. And we arrived into an autumnal heat wave. And spread far below the ancient house were rich meadows, olive and carob orchards of the fertile Valdon Marsh, and beyond was the symmetrical mass of Mount Tomir, flanked by the precise hanging silhouette of the Col de Minaire. And we could see across to the ledges and sweeps of almost inaccessible land where we had hiked earlier that year. Behind the house, three miles beyond the pathless limestone wilderness we intended to explore, was the sea and its rugged cliffs, immune to tourist development. The house was vast, its cobble courtyards were cool and secretive. There was a working olive press driven by donkey power. There was bougainvillea growing under the windows of our bedroom and all around the sounds of a working farm. Beyond our bedroom was a private sitting room and beyond that, a library. And this was where we spent much of our first evening with a bottle of wine after dinner. I'd arrived there with a commission to write a lecture on any literary theme. And I was confident that somehow this library would tell me what to write. We'd arrived into a paradise, it seemed, after a month of death. September had begun with our cutting uh, short, a late summer holiday on that same island, to be with friends whose teenage daughter had died in an accident. Another close friend announced the return of a malignant cancer, and yet another friend the poet Ian Hamilton, was struggling with the effects of the treatment for a related disease. Then came the 11th of September, and our own thoughts of death merged with a generality of sorrow and fear. As we arrived in Majorca, the bombing in Afghanistan was underway, and there was yet more death, and as yet, very little visible progress. The library suited us well. A battered armchair and sofa, good reading lamps, rugs, a solid old desk. A stranger's library offers a soothing psychological problem 
What sort of man was this who had owned the house for 25 years and had died only four years ago? For 20 minutes, I patrolled the shelves without touching a book. The collection belonged to an American diplomat and philanthropist. China, the Arabian deserts, the United Nations, the meditations of major and minor statesmen, American literature, mostly of the 20th century, and travelers like Humboldt, Newby, Thessinger, Lewis and Clark, and a fair dose of Anglophilia, Oxford, country houses, public schools, kings and queens, histories of London. I formed a vague resolution to tidy up my own study when I got home so that books rather than papers all over the desks and floor were the dominant features again. I like other people's libraries. I'm rather like those who prefer the food on others' plates. Every book appears essential. Even the same edition you have at home seems, when taken from an alien shelf, to offer itself up with a greater clarity. But at the end of my overview, it was an unfamiliar book I was reaching for, drawn partly by the tasteful manila cover of a chunky, well-made Farrer and Strauss hardback edition. It was the journal of the American critic Edmund Wilson, in separate volumes on the shelf with the 1920s, 30s, 40s and 50s, and on each cover was a photograph of the writer aging successively, and it was the 40s I held in my hand. Opening the book at random, I read a few entries about Wilson's travels in Italy towards the end of the war in 1945. I immediately liked this anecdote told him by an American officer with a Scotch terrier puppy. A US naval captain arriving in Naples says to a man standing on the quay, I want the harbour master. The man says, I get you nice woman, two nice women, three nice women. The captain repeats his request. I want the harbour master. All right, I try to fix. <laughs> it's the, one of the perils of speaking foreign language. The word want is, is a minefield. I turned to the introductory essay by Wilson's friend, the Henry James scholar Leon Adel. In measured and worldly terms, he summarized the immediate circumstances and condition of a writer who turned 45 in 1940. In previous decades, Wilson had been too busy with hard work, hard drinking, love affairs and promiscuities, as well as three destructive marriages, to pay much attention to the mounting years. Now, at the beginning of the decade, according to Adel, mortality was beginning to press in. Wilson's friends, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, died at the end of 1940, and in Adel's phrase, the aging Wilson awoke with a shock to the fact of his middle age. Fitzgerald's death hit him hard. Men who start writing together write for one another more than they realize till somebody dies. Wilson wrote these words to the poet John Peel Bishop, his old friend from his Vanity Fair days, who himself was to die soon. Wilson reflected in his 40s journal on the tendency of the writers of my generation to burn themselves out or break down. One didn't really believe, till one saw it demonstrated, that giving oneself up completely to art, to emotion, to enjoyment, without planning for the future or counting the cost, produced dreadful disabilities and bankruptcies later. 
Wilson was determined not to go under. And these are the themes of his 1940s, of his middle years, according to Adel. Domestication, endurance, survival. During all the years of his bohemian Greenwich village life, Wilson had drifted from tiny furnished rooms to cheap, shabby apartments. In 1941, he bought a large old house on Cape Cod at Wellfleet. In 1943, he began a long association with the New Yorker, which was to provide him with a reliable and solid income. A certain hand-to-mouth Grub Street life was coming to an end, and also coming to an end with the last tempestuous years of his marriage to Mary McCarthy. He was legally separated from her in 1946, and soon after began his fourth and final marriage. Elena Mum Thornton was half Russian, half German, of aristocratic descent, whose family had given its name to the famous Champagne. Elena brought harmony and stability to the Wellfleet House. She was an editor who took an interest in Wilson's work, and she protected his privacy, and she made the house look beautiful. According to Louise Bogan, Eleanor had evidently put real elbow grease into decorating, scraping floors and walls and making curtains. For the first time, poor Edmund has attention, space, and effectively arranged paraphernalia of all kinds. Edmund has had a very scrappy life down the years. Now all moves smoothly. Tea on a tray for his elevenses, absolute silence in his working hours, and good meals at appropriate intervals. Adel himself remembered visits to the well-organized Wellfleet home in the late 50s when he was put into comfortable quarters in a separate little guest house. Adel says, Wilson occasionally appeared during the day, uncombed, unshaven, in his pajamas and bathrobe, the day-long uniform of his work. After stroking the pets, munching a sandwich, exchanging a few words, he would disappear into the recesses of his study. His social day began around 5 p.m., and when he descended, freshly shaved, with a cherubic glow on his Roman features, fully dressed, wearing a jacket and tie set into a crisp shirt ironed by his wife, ready for the evening bottle of whiskey in the parlour. And then, after a dinner of lively, friendly talk and a good number of glasses of wine, Wilson was capable of polishing off the remains of the bottle of whiskey. And so, as the 40s progressed, the author of Axel's Castle and The Wound and the Bow settled into his highly productive middle years. During that decade, he published seven books and over a hundred articles. He was bald, and his paunch continued to grow steadily, but otherwise his health was good. In 1948, his third child, Helen, was born, and he had straightened out his relations with his other two children. And with his beautiful, loving wife and all the creature comforts, reasonable income, and settled stretches of domesticity, broken by intense periods of travelling, and with many projects still ahead of him, Wilson abandoned his ambitions to be a novelist or poet or dramatist and accepted his vocation as a critic, as the substantial man of letters. For the rest of that evening, I read at random through the 40s journal and then read two essays from The Wound and the Bow. The first was the magisterial summary of Charles Dickens' achievement, and the second was the title essay, The Wound and the Bow. It gives an account of Sophocles' play, The Philoctetes. He is the warrior of mythology with the God-given gift of a bow whose arrows always strike their target. 
he receives a wound from a snake bite. And not only will it never heal, but it stinks foully. He's abandoned by his fellow Greeks and lives in exile on an island with his loathsome sore, unable to practice his craft. However, Troy cannot be conquered without Philoctus' bow and his special skills. The wily Odysseus conspires to steal it and sends the son of Achilles, Neoptolemus, who ends up befriending the warrior and instead of stealing the bow, heals its owner and brings him back to the Greeks. For it is now recognized by the young man in his empathy for the suffering of Philoctetes that the bow is worthless without its owner. As I read, I wondered about, well, I wondered how the reputation of, of Edmund Wilson so influential in his, his time, had fallen away. Among my generation, there was hardly a literature student who had not read Axel's Castle or To the Finland Station. These days, one rarely hears him referred to. Rereading him for the first time in many years, I was struck by the clarity and warmth of his writing, free of jargon or obscurity. His judgment seemed to be formed not only by a vast, easily worn reading, but I sensed a driving curiosity. It was, after all, the project of a perpetual education that drove Wilson to learn languages all through his life. He wrote one point, I always find a pleasure almost sensual in attacking a new language. He had, as Adel points out, an 18th century universal sort of mind. He was a polymath, a skeptic, an atheist. He was a rationalist who liked the concrete detail. His distrust of the mystical or transcendent in literature, may have hampered his response to certain writers, but his own attempts at poetry and fiction gave him a deep respect for practitioners at every level. In Adel's term, Wilson was a brother to the artist. He stands in the great humanist tradition, finally owing less to his beloved Marx and Freud than to the Matthew Arnold of culture and anarchy. At the end of my Wilson evening in the Tramontana Mountains, I found myself stirred by this paragraph from The Wound and the Bow, published in 1941. I should interpret the fable of Philoctetes as follows. The victim of a malodorous disease which makes him abhorrent to society and periodically degrades him and makes him helpless is also the master of a superhuman art which everybody has to respect and which the normal man finds he needs. A practical man like Odysseus, at the same time coarse-grained and clever, imagines that he can somehow get the bow without having Philoctetes on his hands, or that he can kidnap Philoctetes the bowman without regard for Philoctetes the invalid. But the young son of Achilles knows better. It is at the moment when his sympathy for Philoctetes would naturally inhibit his cheating him, so the supernatural influences in Sophocles are often made with infinite delicacy to shade into subjective motivations. It is at this moment of his natural shrinking that it becomes clear to him that the words of the seer had meant that the bow would be useless without Philoctetes himself. It is in the nature of things, of this world where the divine and human fuse, that they cannot have the irresistible weapon without its loathsome owner, who upsets the processes of normal life by his curses and his cries, and who in any case refuses to work for men who have exiled him from their fellowship. 
criticism of this sort that might be of interest to the general reader or, say, to a novelist has ceased to occupy the central place in intellectual culture it had in Wilson's time. The ascent of theory has helped bury Wilson's kind of writing. And here I count myself in the camp of Noam Chomsky and Steven Pinker. I was by this time, I should tell you, brushing my teeth. We are, by adaptive pressures over long stretches of evolutionary time, hardwired for language. We are language animals. We are helpless and exultant before the consequences of our language instinct. And writing itself is no more than a subset, an invention, an extension, and a special case of speech. By blowing air through specialized tissues in our throats, by modulating the shapes of our mouths and the positions of our tongues, we are able to transfer thoughts from one mind to another, instantaneously and with surprising accuracy. We no more need a so-called theory of language to read a work of literature than we need a theory of language to read a theory of language. The very suggestion of this infinite regress demonstrates the redundancy of this kind of literary theory that has helped replace humanist criticism. I thought that what I want most from the critic are the fruits of his or her vast reading and clarity, immense wisdom, and exactly the kind of sympathetic and penetrating judgments we value in private or social life. Later, when I was back in Oxford, I read the passage about Philoctetes one evening to Craig Rain, and he referred me back to these famous lines from Arnold's Culture and Anarchy. Arnold wrote, The great men of culture are those who have laboured to divest knowledge of all that was harsh, uncouth, difficult, abstract, professional, exclusive, to humanise it, to make it efficient outside the clique of the cultivated and learned, yet still remaining the best knowledge and thought of the time. That first night in Mallorca, I went to bed content that I had rediscovered for myself just the kind of guide I wanted. Prompted by Wilson, I would reread Dombian's Son and for the first time, the Sophocles play. I fell asleep and woke some hours later into the grip of what, for want of a better word, I call death thoughts. Not so much terror as bleak wonder, that nighttime acceptance of the obvious that Larkin described in his late and famous poem, O Bard. I'd been getting off lightly. Years had passed since I last lay awake and apprehended in full the indisputable fact of my own approaching death. A contributing element was obviously September, the month of death. Another haunting factor were the photographs of, was the photographs of Wilson on the consecutive covers of his journals, aging by leaps. What damage ten years do to a face? And with what ease a writer's life or any existence can be reduced to biography or to a couple of thousand words of nicely balanced summary? You turn a page and a whole lifetime has passed away. Yes, I could straighten out my library when I got home, but what would be the point? And I thought of various old friends in their dying weeks, how I had visited them at home or in hospital, and years later, how infrequently they crossed my mind. To be forgotten was an added kind of death. And it was this thought that brought to mind a sequence of events, a visit described 
in Wilson's journals, which suddenly seemed to me so vivid as to be a memory from my own past, rather from, than from Edmund Wilson's. In 1948, he and Elena had gone to the music festival at Tanglewood, and while there, had driven to Austerlitz to call on an old friend he had not seen in almost 20 years. She had been the bewitching love of his bohemian youth. She was the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. He found her much changed for the worse, and the visit evinced in him a peculiar kind of sorrow and a revived fear of death. And there was also some rather meaningless number magic troubling me. 1948 was the year of my birth. At the time the Wilsons called on Millet and her husband, Eugene Boisevain, I was just born, and Edmund was 53, my age now. Why, with my death thoughts, was I inserting myself into the drama, trying to appropriate it? Was I drifting through the medium of insomnia towards the vague outlines at the core of a novella, which I might write. And confusingly, the story of Philoctetes was interpolating itself. Was Edna St. Vincent Millet, with her alcoholism and her many other problems, the ailing bowman? And was Wilson, in the part of Neoptolemus, come to restore the poet to her gifts? The much-changed woman who entered the sitting room of her house in Austerlitz to greet Edmund and Eleanor had been the most popular, widely read poet of her generation. The breadth of her appeal has perhaps helped her reputation into decline and obscured what was obvious to her contemporaries like Wilson, that she was deeply serious about her work. She was also very attractive in appearance and in the enigma of her personality. Dozens, if not scores of men, fell in love with her. A neighbor of the Millet sisters in Truro on Cape Cod was used to providing refreshments for the disappointed or suddenly displaced lovers of Edna. By all accounts, she treated her lovers without cruelty and with a lightness of touch. Many remained devoted friends. Her early poems constantly returned to the idea that love dies and that she must move on. And when her first book, Renaissance, came out in 1917, Edmund Wilson was enduring the horrors of the First World War as a stretcher-bearer near Vittel. He read her then and was impressed. Three years later, when he was back in New York, he saw a sonnet of hers in the new literary magazine, The Dial, and he liked it so much that he learned it by heart and used to recite it in the shower. It was called To Love Impuissant and gives a taste of her poetry, tightly argued, playful, and willfully archaic. Love, though you riddle me with darts and drag me at your chariot till I die, O heavy prince, O panderer of hearts, yet hear me tell how in their throats they lie who shout you mighty. Thick about my hair, day in, day out, your ominous arrows purr, who still am free unto no querulous care, a fool and in no temple worshipper. I that have bared me to your quiver's fire, lifted my face into its puny rain, do wreathe you impotent to evoke desire as you are powerless to elicit pain. Now will the God, for blasphemy so brave, punish me surely with the shaft I crave. Five exclamation marks in 14 lines. Same. As he lathered himself with soap before an evening out in Manhattan, the young Wilson 
So he confesses in his memoir of Edna, hoped to be the one to deal her the longed-for shaft. And when he finally met her at a party, she seemed to him, him to be one of those women whose features are not perfect and who in their moments of dimness may not even see pretty, but who, excited by the blood or the spirit, become almost supernaturally beautiful. That evening, she recited her poetry, and he thrilled to her manner. When she read her poems aloud, she had the power of imposing herself on others through a medium that unburdened the emotions of solitude. In a passage in the notebooks that he excluded from the finished memoir, Wilson wrote, Edna ignited for me both my intellectual passion and my unsatisfied desire, which went up together in a blaze of ecstasy that remains for me one of the high points of my life. My subsequent chagrin and perplexity when I discovered that due to her extreme promiscuity, this could not be expected to continue, were rather amazingly soothed by the equanimity on her part, which was also very uncommon. Wilson was working with his friend John Peel Bishop in the editorial department of Vanity Fair. And soon the magazine was publishing Millet's poetry, and soon both men were deeply in love with her. So much so that the editor, Frank Croninshield, began to complain that it was highly inconvenient to have both of his editorial assistants in love with the same contributor. There was something of an awful drama about everything one did with Edna, and yet something that steadies. And something that steadies, one too, Wilson recorded in his journal. And Wilson also wrote, After dinner, sitting on her daybed, John and I held Edna in our arms, according to an arrangement insisted upon by herself. I, her lower half, and John, her upper, with a polite exchange of pleasantries as to which had the better share. Edna complained that our both being in love with her had not even broken up our friendship. A magazine editor described her as a slim girl with sea-green eyes, fine-spun reddish hair, and remarkably small hands. The chairman of the Ohio Valley, Ohio Valley Poetry Society wrote, the slender, red-haired, gold-eyed Vincent Millet dressed in black-trimmed gown of purple silk, was now reading from a tooled leather portfolio, now reciting without aid of book or print, despite her broom-splint legs and muscles twitching in her throat and in her thin arms in a voice that enchanted. Both these descriptions are quoted in the recent biography of Millet by Nancy Milford, whose account is much enlivened by her conversations with Edna's sister, Norma. By the time Wilson had fallen in love with her, Millet was about to become hugely famous with the publication of her second book, A Few Figs from Thistles. It contains the, fa the famous rather self-dramatizing quatrain, My candle burns at both ends, it will not last the night, but ah, my foes and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. And this became something of an anthem for the carefree, party-going set of Jazz Age America. Many of the poems have this simple carpe diem tilt from the Latin poets Millet read so thoroughly. Her reputation for being sexually free gave the impression, reasonably enough, that the poems were autobiographical. 
The erotic and the louche and the girl power playfulness sat nicely at odds with the archaic diction and her high regard for meter and form. And if I loved you Wednesday, well, what is that to you? I do not love you Thursday. So much is true. And why you come complaining is more than I can see. I loved you Wednesday, yes, but what is that to me? Some of the sonnets have a tougher, more conversational style. I shall forget you presently, my dear, one of them starts out promising unromantically, so make the most of this your little day, your little month, your little half a year. And the chilling couplet has a certain tough Darwinian reasonableness. I would indeed that love were longer lived and oaths were not so brittle as they are. But so it is, and nature has contrived to struggle on without a break thus far. Whether or not we find what we are seeking is idle, biologically speaking. Edna brought her two sisters to live with her in Greenwich Village, and later her mother, whom she adored, would join them. They all lived on the top floor of a red-brick townhouse on Charlton Street. Milford quotes a conversation with Malcolm Cowley, who, as a young man about town, visited the Millet girls many times. The appearance of three pretty women tripled his delight. I would go up into that room. I remember the big bed in the corner, he told Milford. They were lovely girls. But Edna had something more than that. She'd break your heart. There was something wild and elusive about her. And it was something to hear the sisters singing. They sang easily together in three-part harmony. And sometimes they'd sing their own songs too. Oh, it was a treat. Wilson had his own experience of the Singing Sisters. In his memoir of Edna, which he published in The Nation and collected into the volume of essays, The Shores of Light, he describes a trip he took in the summer of 1920 from New York to Truro, Cape Cod, where the sisters and their mothers and their mother had rented a cottage. He was still much in love. In those days, a train ran all the way to Provincetown, Wilson was met by a man with a cart who, for some curmudgeonly Cape Cod reason, dropped him a good way short of the house. He got lost in a field and had to drag his suitcase through scrub oak and sweet fern in the breathless hot August night. At last he saw the gleam of the house which he approached across the fields, and inside the little cottage he encountered a storybook vision the three beautiful sisters and their raffish mother who sat up straight and smoked cigarettes while she quizzically followed the conversation. She had, wrote Wilson, anticipated the bohemianism of the daughters. According to Milford, Wilson's first version of this essay included the mother's remark that she had been a slut herself, so why shouldn't her girls be? Norma made him take it out. Wilson wrote, They gave me a dinner on a plain board table by the light of an oil lamp. Edna tried to reassure me that I mustn't be overpowered by all those girls. And one of the others added, and what girls? Norma, the second sister, was a blonde who looked a little like Edna. And Kathleen, the youngest, was different, a dark Irish type. Edna was now very freckled. All were extremely pretty. Afterwards, the sisters sang part songs to him, European peasant songs translated into prose that Edna had turned into verse. There was one from Estonia which seemed to Wilson both merry and poignant. Now the master's son, riches spurning, weds the farmer's maid of his yearning. 
Now the girl, the rose garland covers, leaves her father's house for her lovers. Tra-la-la, lonely my heart dream-laden, would that I the bridegroom were of so sweet a maiden. And the three sisters sang to the enchanted young writer songs they had concocted in their girlhood in Maine. Let us sing a little song to the men we've loved so long and to those we've only loved a little while, a little while. The cottage only had two rooms on the first floor with no partition between them. The only privacy Edmund could find with Edna was outside on a swing on the porch. And before the mosquitoes drove them back indoors, he managed formally to ask her to marry him. She did not immediately reject him. But in any case, wrote Wilson, it was plain to me that proposals of marriage were not a source of great excitement. Nancy Milford did well to interview Edna's sister Norma over a period of years. She apparently hooted in delight when she remembered that summer of 1920 out on Cape Cod. There were swarms of bees, and the sisters decided to let them have at least one sting. And we held out our arms, heads turned away, eyes squeezed shut. And of course, they never stung us. A Swedish writer, so Norma told Milford, who looked so wonderfully at ease in his country clothes, also had bees swarming around his house. So they were all talking about bees. He had been in the bath, he said, when a bee alighted on the tip of his penis. He remained, shall we say, perfectly still, then, as quick as a wince, as quick as a wink, uh, Edna said, "Where the bee sucks, there suck I." <laughs> she could say such things without a moment's thought. Norma also remembered an afternoon walking with Edna up Mount Overlook, being trailed in a vaguely threatening way by two callow youths. Suddenly, Edna turned around and, crooking her finger, beckoned them. Well, they came right up pretty quick. And she said, looking at them directly in the eye, it is true that we have vaginas and breasts, but we are walking alone together because it pleases us to, and that is our right. We have selected to be alone, and we intend to remain so. The two boys took off like rabbits. (laughs) The morning after Edmund popped his question, Edna sat on the floor in the bare living room of the cottage and recited her recent poems to him. She knew them by heart. She played the Fifth Symphony, presumably of Beethoven's, on an old phonograph. She was committing the whole thing to memory. The music, raspy and blurred, came to Wilson, surcharged with her power. Friends dropped by. The conversation was light but learned, with a Greek professor quoting a poem in Sanskrit. Wilson and Millet walked along the cliffs above the beach. When at last he came away, he was devastated, for I was not the solution, nor was anyone else she knew, and she had come to a crisis in her life. I'll be 30 in a minute, she said to me one day. In the months to come, the 25-year-old Wilson would try to calm himself by doing magic tricks in front of the mirror. Inevitably, the blaze of ecstasy began, but only slowly, to die away. So, 28 years later, he drove out from Tanglewood to see her, and this was the visit that was haunting me that sleepless night in Spain. I'd read about both encounters in the same evening, Cape Cod in 1920, Austerlitz in 1948, and they were both clear in my mind, 
And it was precisely this ease with which distantly separated events could be elided, with which lives now completed and faded could be folded into a handful of pages that made me see in the soundless dark what Larkin says is really always there, unresting death. When Edmund and Eleanor dropped by that afternoon in early August 1948, the husband, Eugene Boisvain, had only one year to live, and Edna St. Vincent Millet had two. Boisvain, grey and stooped, shuffled off to get Edna, leaving Edmund and Eleanor to wait in the sitting room. Wilson wrote, the couches looked badly worn. The whole place seemed shabby and dim. When he brought Edna in, Wilson thought that if he had met her unexpectedly somewhere, he would not have recognised her. She had changed terribly. She was somewhat heavy and dumpy. Her cheeks were fat and red. She had flabby jowls. She had a bad case of the shakes. Her hands shook and her mouth and chin flapped like an old woman's, said Wilson. Eugene brought martinis. He babied her as Wilson thought he himself used to baby Mary McCarthy, and kept drinking up two-thirds of Edna's drink on the pretext of refreshing it. Wilson may not have known it then, but Milford's book makes it poignantly clear that Edna had suffered and fought against morphine addiction and was now only precariously free of it. Beyond that was the drinking. At moments she seemed on the point of bursting into tears whenever she could not lay her hands on a book or a poem in a notebook. She was telling Wilson how excited she was to be working again after producing nothing for years. He felt the pressure on him for his assurance, approval, praise, and he felt, just as I had when she was young, that I was being sucked into her narrow and noble world where all that mattered was herself and her poetry. The nervousness, which must have been felt by all four, wore off as the drinks kept coming. They talked about John Bishop, now dead a couple of years, the darkness in his poetry, and about his elegy to Scott's Fitzgerald, which Wilson had published in the posthumous anthology, The Cracker. She showed him the poetry she was writing. It was, wrote Wilson, of an almost unrelieved blackness. She had been translating Catullus and quoted lines in which he praised to have his early piatas restored. This was in accord with her present mood. Something reminded Wilson of the Estonian folk song she and her sisters had sung to him that night he had stumbled across the field. Frustratingly, she could not find the book it had been anthologized in, but after reflecting for a moment, she was able to recover the song with its sweet little plaintive tune and her own bittersweet words. Lonely my heart, dream lady, would that I the bridegroom were of so sweet a maiden. Persistently, Wilson the critic, the kindly son of Achilles, vying with and overriding Wilson, the long-ago spurned lover, quizzed Millet, the wounded bowman, about her work, about differences between typescript and final versions of poems, and about the direction she was taking, about the gramophone recordings of her work. Delicately, he avoided mentioning his low regard for the propaganda poems she had written during the Second World War. He knew that she knew she had made a mistake with these poems, and he knew she craved encouragement. Whatever the intensity of his feelings, he was still, in Adel's terms, the brother to the artist. And then, because he wanted Eleanor to hear the poet's beautiful voice, he asked Edna to recite. He chose for her a poem that he thought would evoke nostalgia. 
It had always seemed a romantic and magical poem. It was The Poet and His Book from her 1921 collection, 2nd April. Now, time and circumstances had revealed its obvious subject, death and oblivion. It's a longish poem with a simple conceit. The poet's death will not come at that moment when she breathes her last breath or when her heart finally stops. It will come later, when no one any longer reads her work. It contains a plea for survival, reiterated in a reprise, do not let me die. Stranger, pause and look from the dust of ages. Lift this little book. Turn the tattered pages. Read me. Do not let me die. Wilson, quote, having by that time had three or four martinis, was overcome. As Edna recited from memory in her passionate and beautiful, precise voice, the room became so charged with emotion that I began to find it difficult to bear. I could not weep. I did not want her to weep. The familiar voice, the familiar lines with their meanings newly wrought. He was being pulled back to a time when his feelings for her were of an insufferable intensity. Back to a state of mind so demandingly, imprisoningly personal. And he was determined to resist. At 53, it was too much for him. He tried to reassert what he called his middle-aged indifference and protect himself with the thought of the prosperous, settled, routinized life he had with Eleanor, the order and deep silence of his study, the elevenses on a tray, the crisply ironed shirts. He seemed to feel the threat to him as almost violent. This visit became like the fears and desires, the revived emotions of sleep, and the changes in her were like the old images of dreams that come to us exaggerated, distorted, swollen with longing and horror. So she was still, although now in a different way, almost as disturbing to me as she had ever been in the 20s to which she had so completely belonged. For she could not be a part of my present, and to see her exerted on me a painful pull, as if to drag me up by the roots, to gouge me out of my present personality, and to annihilate all that had made it. My own life was now organized and grounded. I had children to worry and divert me, and from my present point of view, besides, it disturbed me to find Edna and Eugene haunting like deteriorated ghosts their own comfortable house in the country. Though Eleanor thought they should have stayed longer, soon after the reading of the poet in his book, Wilson was insisting on leaving. What had desolated and frightened me there, he wrote in the shores of light, was death, against which Edna, when I saw her, with the draft of her unfinished Arabian poems, was making her last fierce struggle. And so they left, and Wilson never saw her again. These were the ghosts that troubled my insomnia in Mallorca last October. And I disinter them now for their own sake, really, and for these final brief reflections. I think it was Arto who offered this advice to writers blocked in their work, or perhaps it was a prescription for automatic writing which long ago I adapted to my own purposes. To the blocked writer, Arto, but possibly someone else, said, turn away from the typewriter and without looking, press any key. Write the first word beginning with that letter that comes into your mind. Immediately write a sentence that begins with that word. It used to surprise me how often the apparently random generated sentence 
would bear some close relation to my preoccupations. Sometimes, though very rarely, it actually freed me into some productive work. And of course, it's the illusion of randomness, the freedom from the responsibilities of choice that allows the inhibited mind its release. And similarly, I'm sure that whatever book I had taken from the shelves of that rich little Majorcan library, whatever pages I had turned, I would still have arrived at love and death. The central undertaking of imaginative literature is the investigation of human nature. That nature is limited and defined by our mortality, and this is the subject to which most writers must eventually come. We are bound by the accidental gift of a biologically adapted consciousness to reflect on our own inevitable end, on the anaesthetic from which none come round. The death of a writer is no more significant, or for that matter, no more meaningless than the death of anyone else. But by the very nature of their art, writers may leave behind them the words that speak straight from their own anxieties and terrors to our own. This should make grim reading, but strangely, it's liberating, the more so when it's intelligent and frank. This is the sure extinction that we travel to. It is what we must all share. To write wisely or brilliantly about it without taking refuge in the glow of an afterlife offers a kind of redemption. We may only be monkeys after all, but we are very clever monkeys. I've always thought there was something exhilarating and comic in Larkin's death poems, the old fools crouching below extinctions out, or it's only oblivion and religion's vast moth-eaten musical brocade. Obard has gained, has even gained in power since Larkin's death. He dreaded it, it came, and he was right. His brave honesty could not save him. Death is no different whined at than withstood. That afternoon in Austerlitz, for all his memories of love giving way to premonitions of death, Edmund Wilson still had another two productive decades ahead of him. Edna Millet died two years later, alone in the house after falling down the stairs, probably drunk. She left behind her, on the top step, a full glass of red wine. Nothing of what passed between these ex-lovers at their last meeting would exist had not Wilson taken the trouble to spend an hour with his journal afterwards. His jottings and the later memoir have something of the quality of great literature. What he describes on an August afternoon in 1948 is quite specific and it resonates beyond its particulars. And as for myself and my own insomniac death thoughts, they dissolved at last into the kindly embraces of my wife and so I kept the matter at bay a little while. But there is one more death that September friend who was suffering from the treatment of his illness, the poet Ian Hamilton, died last December. And since he was, in the spirit of Edmund Wilson, a complete man of letters, of fine and independent judgment, a poet, biographer and critic, who made a life for his criticism outside the academy and who admired Arnold and who wrote with the lucidity that Arnold prescribed, I'll end with him. Writing of Edna St. Vincent Millay with typical insight, Ian Hamilton says of the distraught, victimized tone of her more authentic poems, we don't really believe, nor does she, that lover A or lover B can help her much. The real torturer is death, or the idea of death, 
Death is unfailingly constant. Death means what it says. Sexual passion is, at best, a way of keeping the real enemy at bay. An indignant, almost regal death defiance is often at the center of Millet's sexual bravado, and it can make for heart-rending pathos. She will deal with death, she boasts, as she would with an insistent, unwanted suitor. And here, Ian Hamilton quotes the simple stanza, with all my might, my door shall be barred, I shall put up a fight, I shall take it hard. She saw off many suitors, including Wilson, but this one, but this date, she could not turn away. It was Ian who put up the fight, and we who are taking it hard, this loss of such a gifted man. The lines about Millet are from his recent book based on Johnson's Lives of the Poets, and it's called Tellingly Against Oblivion. And for those who would like to read or reread Wilson's piece on the Philoctetes, The Wound and the Bow, it can be found in the Penguin Book of 20th Century Essays, beautifully edited, need I add, by Ian Hamilton, to whom I give the last word. Here is the short poem, Biography, which says everything I've said this afternoon in just four lines. And it was read out at his funeral by his brother Stuart. Who turned the page? When I went out last night, his life was left wide open, halfway through, in lamplight, on my desk, the middle years. Now look at him. Who turned the page? <laughs>